Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you head deep inside ourselves, you'll find our genetic material our DNA. It's made up of some six billion molecules, known as nucleotides, and their sequence makes us who we are. But when you look at it under a microscope, you will find that there's more than one structure. There are actually 46 DNA complexes, and they're known as chromosomes. Every single one of us has 45 that are the same, but that 46th can vary. It could be an X or a Y. And that is the main difference between the biological sexes. Although, as we all know, it's not the only one. We've spent millennia trying to identify all of the variations between the two. Now we have one more difference to deal with. The effect of COVID-19. This week, we're going to learn how SARS-CoV-2 affects people based on that 46th chromosome. We'll also look at whether genetics or lifestyle are more to blame for severe infections. And finally, we'll explore the effect of another pandemic virus on biological sex, HIV. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and we're going to head straight into the battle of the sexes against COVID-19. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Over thousands of years, long before we even knew DNA existed, we were discerning the differences between the biological sexes. But now that we have that genetic code, we can take it to a whole new level of understanding. It turns out there are several differences between XX and XY when we are exposed to a pathogen like SARS-CoV-2, the virus behind COVID-19 and it's time to find out what they are. Our guide for this journey is Eileen Scully. She's an assistant professor of medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. She has been researching infection, immunity, and biological sex for years, and has recently published a paper to explain the possible consequences of COVID-19 infection based on biological sex. How do men and women differ in their immunities? I think I'll start off the discussion just by sort of defining terms. So when we're talking about men and women, uh, for the purposes of this discussion, we're mostly talking about cisgender men and cisgender women. And when I, I say that just because I think when we talk about differences, we have to ultimately start talking about what underlies those differences. Biological sex is defined usually at birth, and it's based on your anatomy and your sex chromosomes, whether you're XX or XY, and then the hormonal environment that sort of arises out of that biological setup. Gender is different, and that's defined by your internal sense of self. And when we talk about gender, we can see a relationship where you can have a sex chromosome complement that is a, would be assigned to one sex, but an opposite gender identity largely due to the fact that this is all we have literature about, I'm going to be talking about cisgender men and cisgender women. 
And throughout the discussion, we'll, there'll be a couple of different points where we talk about what effects are due to gender and what effects are due to biology and when we can't tell, but that'll be sort of the framework that we're using. So now to go back to your original question, which is how are men and women different? There's two ways to approach that. I think one of my uh, senior mentors at one point called this type of research redefining the obvious, which is to say that men and women are in fact different. But I think from an immunologic perspective, that's sometimes a little bit counterintuitive. People sort of view this as, okay, this is people versus the infecting agents, the viruses, the bacteria, whatever. It's sort of a monolithic battle. It's us versus them. But on the other hand, the demands on the immune system of a female versus a male are actually quite different. So females in general have to be able to tolerate carrying a pregnancy, which means that you have to be able to, for nine months, 10 months, have in your body something that is not part of you without sort of launching your immune system against that. And then after birth, you have to be able to deliver immunity to that baby. And that's usually through breast milk with the transfer of maternal antibodies. And that's not an immunologic demand that exists in for male sex. And so that leads to a fundamental difference in some of the features of our immune systems and that permeates the entire lifespan and so can affect women versus men at times when they're having nothing to do with childbearing. So let's start with the genetics because we do talk about XX and XY. What is the difference in terms of how these particular genetic traits uh, respond to an immune stimulus? Females have two X chromosomes and males have an X and a Y. And what that would lead to is that females would have what you would think would be a double dose of some of those genes. So it turns out that through the magic of evolution and genetics, females automatically inactivate one of those chromosomes. So they only express genes from one of them. But there is a subset of genes that do what we call as escape from X inactivation, meaning that this process that sort of quiets or silences one of the X chromosomes is, is a little bit leaky. And this can lead to expression of both copies of some of those genes. So why does this matter for the immune system? Well, there's a couple of very important immune active genes on the X chromosome. For example, a molecule called TLR7 which is a toll-like receptor that senses the presence of, of virus material. So that's actually encoded on the X chromosome. And there's actually data from the autoimmunity literature where the immune system actually acts against yourself. The TLR7 can be expressed from both X chromosomes and that this increase in expression may be actually associated with the development of certain autoimmune diseases like lupus. So, when we talk about genes that are important for recognition of pathogens or susceptibility to pathogens, understanding that they're on the X chromosome can mean that either females have two chances to get it right, whereas males only have one chance, or potentially that females can have a double dose exposure to some of those genes. We see that men and women seem to have chronic illnesses that differ, and many of them are autoimmune. And so when we see a difference between, say, the rates of uh, lupus or, or even the rates of some autism spectrum disorders, ASDs, we tend to see that there is always this imbalance between them. Does the presence of just that Y chromosome help to dictate which risk is going to be higher? In my first answer, I was very focused on the X chromosome. And, and that's not to say that the Y chromosome is not important. It is just more genetically poor in that it doesn't have as many genes. 
but there are actually really elegant experiments done by some um, immunologists who focus on animal models where they've taken what's called the Y determinant region, which actually makes an animal male and can transfer it to an animal with two Xs. So you can see how if you have just a few of the Y genes, but two of the X chromosomes, how that affects your phenotype. So we do know from some of these models that there are genes on the Y chromosome that are important. We also know that the sex hormone testosterone has an impact on immune responses as well. It can be difficult to tell exactly how they play into all these diseases, but I think fundamentally that's one of my missions in my work is that things that are difficult are sometimes important. Most people, when they talk about the difference between men and women, of course, don't talk about the genetics. They talk about the hormonal aspects. And what I find interesting is over the last 50 years or so, we've been able to see that hormones have some relationship with our immune systems. But can we identify the differences between men and women based on hormones and their immunity? It is clear that hormones affect a lot of aspects of the immune system. One of the challenges is that, you know, when you take cells out of the body and expose them to one hormone or a combination of two hormones for a period of time to do an experiment in the laboratory, that's really quite a different situation than being in a body where there's regular cycling of hormones in a balance of multiple other factors. So this has made it, I think, somewhat challenging for us to understand the role of hormones in some pathology, although we can show many effects when we look at their studies in the laboratory. I think the other thing that we've learned is that if you look at large studies that have looked at, for example, the effect of menopause on risk of cardiovascular disease, we know that in general, younger women are much less likely than younger men to have cardiac events. And one of the postulated reasons for this was the presence of estrogen as cardioprotective. So early on, hormone replacement therapy given to women around the time of menopause was thought to maybe extend that period of protection. And that wasn't what was observed. So I think with that one study, which was a large study with a very simple hypothesis, we sort of learned that this is much more complex than presence or absence. And I think, again, it's another point where we have to say that it's challenging to sort these things out, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to. And I know that even currently there are thoughts about how to use hormones to modulate the immune system. But again, hormones have many effects, including those that they have on the immune system. Now, I appreciate that we're going to be talking about COVID and, and we are going to get into it a bit later, but I do want to get into the impacts on another virus that you actually have researched, and that happens to be HIV. It's also a pandemic virus that has been around for a very long time, and your research has shown that there is a difference between men and women. So I think it would be a great baseline for us to be able to start looking at COVID. So I'm wondering if you could just give us a, a bit of an overview of what you have found over the years with respect to HIV and the difference uh, based on biological sex. You know, HIV as a an epidemic in the United States and in Canada as well is, is largely focused in men. Um, but globally, women actually are more than half of the people living with HIV, over 19 million. That is largely driven by the fact that young women and girls are among the most likely to be infected in the world in sub-Saharan Africa. One of the reasons why I was interested in this in the beginning is that as I moved into cure research, I was again and again struck by how 
few women were represented in any of the studies. They're vastly underrepresented in studies and in particular in interventional trials related to cure. Why does it matter? Well, because it, it doesn't behave exactly the same way in men and women. From back in the late 1990s, work done by Tom Quinn and, and others showed that if you set your treatment initiation standards based on viral load, you captured about 78% of men who progressed to AIDS in one year in their cohort. However, using that same viral load threshold, which was part of the clinical guidelines at the time, you only captured 37% of the women who were going to progress to AIDS. And so what that means is that for women, having a lower level of viral load was not protective, that they still progressed at the same rate as men with a substantially higher viral load. And it is actually held across, I think, 13 studies that women tend to have a lower viral load, but again, it's not protective. So this is one of those cases which I think is important as we consider the COVID-19 epidemic, where what seems like just a, a marker of disease here, quantitating how much HIV virus you have in your blood, actually behaves differently in men and women. And women having a lower viral load didn't mean that they were going to do better, although men having that same viral load did actually do a little bit better, had a little bit slower progression. So that's one thing that's been known about HIV now for about a decade. We know that in general, women and men respond very well to treatment, and especially with modern day antiretroviral therapy, we expect them to have the same level of, of viral suppression. And then other sex differences have emerged in this post-treatment era that we're in now. So one of them is that women appear to have an increased risk for comorbid conditions associated with HIV that are not related to AIDS, but are more prevalent in people with HIV, and that includes things like cardiovascular events and strokes. And so the suggestion is there may be more what we would call residual or sort of leftover inflammation in treated women than we see in men. The other thing that we've learned is that the HIV reservoir appeared to behave differently between men and women. So knowing that there were differences in viremic infection, our question was whether there would be differences in the latent reservoir. And so what we found working with John Carnes' group and well as with Steve Deeks' group at UCSF is that their women have lower levels of residual virus activity than males who are similar in a number of different ways. And estrogen can directly block HIV transcription. So one of the goals of HIV cure is actually to turn on HIV, which sounds like the opposite of your goal, but turning it on so that you can then recognize the infected cell and eliminate it. And this turns out to appears to have a higher barrier in women than men. The one other thing that I'll mention is that we've learned also that women are more likely to have spontaneous control of HIV. So these so-called elite controllers, a very small percentage of people who are infected with HIV and actually don't require treatment, but are able to control the virus. Women are somewhere between two and six times more likely to become elite controllers. Although paradoxically, they're actually underrepresented in the large co cohort studies that have looked at the determinants of elite control. And I'll just pair with that, that from an immune response standpoint, we know that when the TLR7, that receptor I mentioned earlier, encoded on the X chromosome and recognizes virus components, that responds more robustly in cells from women as compared to men. So again, suggesting that possibly a more robust female immune response may have some benefits in um, initial response to the virus, in this case, HIV. And it brings me back to about 25 years ago, and, and I hope you remember this. 
there were some women in Nairobi, Kenya, I believe there were 11 of them, who were showing resistance to HIV infection, regardless of how many times they tended to be exposed. And it was only solved a number of years later, I believe it was 2010, where they realized that these women seemingly had, as you said, that more robust immune response. But more importantly, it was an immune response that didn't put them at a higher risk of the actual HIV virus infection. From my perspective, those 11 women really opened up the door to an increase in research in women for HIV. Because as you said, we really had that selection bias on men back in the day. Do you think we need to be making sure that we're studying um, men and women as equal components of any study and look at them completely differently so that we're not grouping results and creating some kind of information bias? On the surface, we just need to have adequate representation of women and of all groups, actually, and in cure research and in other places that includes people of different races and ethnicities who, again, bear a substantial burden of these infections, but are underrepresented in the studies that we are intending to be able to be useful in all people. And this is from the perspective of identifying important variations in the efficacy of treatment or in side effects. This seems to me to be essential. In one decade, I believe it ended in early 2000, 80% or 8 out of 10 of the drugs that were withdrawn from the market were withdrawn by the FDA for post-marketing side effects observed only in women, which suggests that we're not adequately testing things in order to understand how they may differentially impact men and women. And I think more recently, the studies looking at the efficacy of pre-exposure prophylaxis, which in some cases did not include women, and then were proposed to be approved for women, highlight another instance in which we really can't assume that things are going to work unless we've actually tested that. That seems to be like the first principle of science. I would also say that I'm also a clinician and spend a good bit of time taking care of patients. And we're always searching for the things that will help us to best counsel patients to say, your risk is higher. Please, you know, also engage in this treatment or your risk is lower, and I want to reassure you about that. And we look for very small variations in lab values or components of the family history or, or things like that. But biological sex or, you know, or gender identity, for that matter, are not generally included in those risk assessments, even in the face of data to suggest that there is a, a major difference. And I, I think that's partially because oftentimes trial results are reported as controlled for sex without sex disaggregation, or the sample size is not adequate to really assess whether or not there was a difference in outcomes between men and women. And then there's also the risk of just dividing your population too many times and then therefore losing an effect. But it's something that I've actually noticed in a couple of papers on COVID-19 that are really important papers, um, where I feel like the reporting on what the effects are in men and women is is inadequate. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Back at the beginning of 2020, long before COVID-19 was declared a pandemic, doctors were finding something strange about the infection. The number of cases were equally distributed amongst the biological sexes, yet the majority of people showing up in the hospital were biologically XY. The observation led to a discussion on the possible reasons behind this discrepancy. Researchers looked at everything from viruses to vices, but they continued to be vexed. No one, it seems, could separate genetics from lifestyle. Eileen Scully ventured into the discussion and came out with an incredible paper outlining how genetics could be at play. I've put the link in the show notes and I highly recommend you download it and follow along while you listen. From your perspective, What has been missing in terms of biological sex in the COVID-19 studies that we've been seeing? So I guess what I most want to see is moving past the reports on rates of severity and rates of admission to try to get us closer to mechanisms. So I think based on the emerging data, we suspected there would be a male bias in mortality. And now this has been reported multiple times in different, very high quality studies across multiple different cultures, which again is is something that suggests that it's not just a gender-based factor, but it's actually a a sex-based factor since gender-based risks will vary a lot across different cultures. But what we need to do now is figure out why, because that's the pathway to finding treatments for both men and women, or at least that's one pathway. If we can identify relevant features that are associated with outcomes, and we know we have these two nice groups that are defined by differences in outcome, then we can use that, leverage that to try and and find pathways that are most important to the pathogenesis of disease. You said probably my favorite word, which is mechanism. Uh, It's what I live for. And unfortunately, when this uh, pandemic first happened and I was being asked about the impact on men and women, I really didn't have any mechanisms. I just simply had to say that for the most part, men live harder, which is a very antiquated concept. I'm sure you would agree. Thankfully, you've actually done some examination into the data and you have some partial mechanisms. And I'd like to go through some of them. And the first one basically comes right down to the fact that, you know, the virus has to get into a cell in order to start infection. And it looks like there might be a difference between men and women there. Yeah. So there's a couple things that that may differ specifically on viral entry. So the receptor for SARS-CoV-2 is ACE2. And that's encoded on the X chromosome. There is some data to suggest it may have hormone sensitive regulation and that there may be escape from X inactivation, although not necessarily in the tissues of greatest interest for um, transmission of SARS-CoV-2. I'll just put that caveat on there. And then there's the Tempris 2, which is also critical for efficient entry into cells. And this is actually a target in prostate cancer and is sensitive to androgen 
a base stimulation. And so again, we have another component on the cell surface that's part of the mechanisms of how SARS-CoV-2 enters cells that's directly related to a biological sex determinant, in this case, androgen receptor expression. Um, and so I think from both of those standpoints, there's a suggestion there, there may just be a difference in how efficiently cells from men and women are infected. I'll just caveat that, that there hasn't been great demonstration of that in the primary targets, which are the nasal epithelial cells, but certainly there is a lot of suggestive research that that might be one of the things that's operative. And I think it's safe to say that most of the studies that we're seeing are being done out of necessity as opposed to a big question that's being asked. Now, moving on, the virus is now inside of the cell. If it does get processed, it'll be presented to the immune system, uh, which is, of course, how vaccines work as well. What happens between men and women when that presentation occurs? So what I would focus on first is sort of the, the once it's in the cell, then the next part to, to lead to the processing and presentation is that paired signal that has to occur that says, actually, oh, you should process and present this. This is foreign. And that's sort of the immune system's barrier against randomly presenting our components of our own selves uh, to the immune system. And so that's controlled by sensors, uh, innate sensors that, that tell the cell, this is not part of me, this is foreign. And so from that perspective, the activity of TLR7 again comes up. So this is one of the sensors of viral products, and in this case, viral RNA. And there's a really interesting paper in JAMA that looked at a, the Journal of the American Medical Association that looked at a few young men who had very severe SARS-CoV-2 infection and were found to have a mutation in their TLR7 gene. Again, this gene on the X chromosome, so they only get one try to get it right. So I think that's one thing right at the beginning where we have at least one set of data to suggest that there is a difference between men and women in that they will be more, males will likely be more sensitive to any defects in TLR7 sensing. Again, these studies are very challenging to do because you'll have a spectrum of disease and, and you can imagine the problems right away. So should you select 40 women with infection and 40 men with infection? Or should you select 40 women with low severity infection and match them to men who had higher severity infection? What's the right control and comparator group? Because if you select, for example, people who are all controlled to be severe disease, then you've actually enriched for a population of unusual women, because women are generally protected from severe disease when compared to men. So a lot of these comparison studies are quite challenging to even design, because it becomes difficult to decide who to compare. The other possibility you can sort of feed in there is, is we know a relatively large proportion of people, and when I say that, I mean around 20% maybe, may have no symptoms at all. So there's some possible moment there at the very early virus enter cells, you are infected, but where the immune system can rapidly control even without you feeling symptoms. And so the question is whether there is some early control activation, some very early events that we would really need to understand what happens at that early time point that can affect the whole downstream immune response and whether early control is somehow more common in females versus males. And of course, that then leads into what everybody has heard about over the last year, which is the fact that when it comes to severity of infection, it seemed to be affecting men a lot harder than women. And 
I don't know if the studies have continued to show that, but if there is a reason, um, I, I'd like to know what it might be. I will say that at the time, there was a lot of thought that this may have been related to a gender difference, which is the higher prevalence of smoking among men, in particular older men in China, as compared to their age-matched female controls. That was one thought. But at the, also at the same time, I looked back into some of the research on SARS-CoV-1 and MERS, the prior um, epidemic uh, coronavirus strains. And Ralph Barrick's group had done some research on SARS-CoV-1 showing that they could actually recapitulate the male bias that was observed in that infection in animal models. So male mice showed a higher mortality than female mice, and they showed that this was sensitive to modulation of sex hormones. So that to me suggested, oh, this might actually be another virus for which there's a biological sex difference and not just a gender-based difference in other health behaviors. I was actually in Saudi Arabia when MERS was around back in 2013. And one of the things that I noticed was that uh, lifestyle seemed to play a significant role in the risk. I mean, it wasn't just farmers kissing camels. There was a number of other issues involved. And one of the things that we noticed was that um, the way that society worked meant that the potential for exposure was much higher in men than in women. Because COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 has really taken the world by storm, we sort of have treated everybody equally. But I'm thinking maybe as we're moving sort of down the line, we could be looking at interventions that are specific to biological sex to be able to help improve the chances that either uh, they won't get exposed or at least lead to some kind of severe infection. So I think thinking about prevention is incredibly important. And as you know from HIV, like prevention can also be sex and gender specific. I think um, with SARS-CoV-2, Initially, there's sort of this epidemiologic move where you go from being sort of a special populations epidemic to a generalized epidemic. And I feel like SARS-CoV-2 in many locations in the world has become generalized where everyone is sort of at risk as opposed to only frontline healthcare workers or, or other specifics. But those things are very challenging to disentangle. For example, women are up to 70% of the healthcare workers in the United States. And when this is when you define healthcare workers as including everyone who does healthcare work, which includes physicians, nurses, patient care associates in the hospital, the home health aides who do so much of the care for people and also nursing homes. And so you could argue actually that women have been at substantially higher risk. So that's one way to look at it. That said, many of those locations have gotten personal protective equipment, and there are gender-based studies that show that women may be more likely to engage in use of personal protective equipment, including masking, both in the workplace and outside the workplace, and that they wash their hands a little bit longer than most men. So there are probably some also gender-protective behaviors. And then there are men who may work in environments like construction sites, and so you can think like, okay, we've got some interventions here to prevent transmission, but then we're packing everybody together and probably without the full PPE that most nurses would have access to in a, in a hospital environment. Thinking about prevention has to be informed by the people who your, your goal is to prevent infection. We've also learned that shaming is not an actually effective public health strategy and risk reduction has gotta be another consistent part of the messaging. So if people feel like they can't wear a mask for 20 hours a day, then 
ask them to try and wear it for 10. You know, th that this is uh, without judgment and without um, shaming, but to try to harm reduce and risk reduce in ways that are concordant and acceptable for the, the people that you're trying to protect. Based on what you've seen with HIV, uh, what we've seen with a number of other infectious diseases, what questions do you think we're going to need to answer with respect to COVID-19 over the next, say, five to 10 years, once we've gotten through this pandemic and we're just dealing in the, the yearly waves that we're seeing, just like we do with the common colds and flu? So I think there's a couple of things that I think will, will continue to be um, major questions. One of them is going to be vaccine efficacy and reactogenicity. So I think the efficacy looks excellent. There is data in other vaccines that women tend to have more adverse reactions from vaccines. So whether the reactogenicity of this these particular vaccine platforms is higher in women versus men and whether that would be a disincentive to vaccination is an important thing to consider moving forward. And again, I'm not speaking about a side effect that would limit the use, but just one that would be unpleasant and might dissuade people from getting the vaccine. I think a second really important question is the post-acute COVID syndrome or long COVID type of presentation, which is a persistence of either cognitive or neurologic or respiratory or in some cases cardiac um, redu reductions in, in function that has been reported um, in patients with SARS-CoV-2, both those who had severe illness and those who did not, and understanding whether there's a sex-specific risk for developing one of these syndromes, I think will be another important research question. And then I think the last thing I would say is that, you know, people who are doing research on SARS-CoV-2 are sometimes disappointed to discover that something is not unique to COVID. Um, as an infectious disease and immunology researcher, I'm not dissuaded by that at all because it's actually quite unusual to have the opportunity to learn so much about infection in such a broad population of people across such a short period of time where you've controlled for lots of other things that are usually quite variable when you try to build a cohort over the course of 10 years. So I, I think that we have to view this global tragedy in some ways as also an opportunity to learn more about fundamental relationships between the immune system and viruses that hopefully can help us to identify treatments and interventions to be deployed faster and with greater efficacy the next time something like this occurs. And so I think that's the other major scientific priority, getting back to your favorite point, which is also mine, which is mechanism. So why are there differences and how can we use them? That takes us to the end of the discussion, although I'm sure we haven't answered all of your questions. So now it's your turn to ask about COVID-19 and biological sex. Tweet me at JATetro or email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. And if you want to leave me that voice message, just head over to speakpipe.com sass and post your question. We'll take several of them and give you the answers next week. In the meantime, for Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. 
You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to Eileen Scully and her awesome paper. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Greg Schott. Have a great week. Stay safe. And as always, make sure to show them some sass.